Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I'm joined today with my absolute best friends because it is a live show, and so we need all troops aboard the good ship Equity. Natasha, please say hello. Hello, hello. And Marianne, hello. I hear Austin, Texas is nice and cool this time of year. Oh, yeah, it's great. Hi, I'm happy to be here. No weather, guys, from the top. How are we already talking about weather? Okay, it's because it's because I have to turn the AC off in my office to record the show, and it's hot here, and I was thinking that if I'm sweating, Marianne must be literally turning into a puddle of human goo. Okay, fine. Yeah, no, at least we have good air conditioning, or thank goodness. Yeah, thank God. So for everyone tuned in, we have changed this up a little bit. We are not on Hopin because that was a little hard to get people to register and to show up. And it was kind of an extra, I don't know, thing to jump through. So instead we're on Twitter spaces. So you can tune in live to audio. We're on YouTube. So you can watch a video of us if you'd like. And I think we're also on Facebook, a platform I have not used in like five years. So I don't actually know if that's still a thing, but I hear that it is. So you can tune in when we're live, yeah, wherever else you want, just not on Hopin. Apparently, equity in the metaverse. I could yes. see that oh happening. <laughs> Coming soon to Horizon Virtual World. To give everyone a quick rundown, we have deals of the week. As always, we're going to talk about Home Lister, Degreed, and also a really neat company that's bringing kind of GPT 3 to the communication center. And then we have Coalition, Robinhood, and then Backstage Capital and Substack. So, quite a lot to get through this week. And we're going to start with Home Lister. Marianne, this just came out. Talk to us. Yeah. So, this is an interesting startup. It's actually been around seven years. And If you've ever tried to sell a home, then you know how much you have to pay in commission when you close on that sale. And it's a lot of money. In most cases, about 6%. So if you're, yeah, 6%, again, is a lot of money. So say you sell your house for $500,000, you're going to pay $30,000 in commission. So some might argue... (laughs) that that's a bit much in terms of proportion-wise of the amount of work that a real estate agent might be putting in. So not to diminish what real estate agents do, but there are many that feel like that's just an inflated amount of commission. So this company, Homelister, was started by Lindsay McLean, who had an experience selling her house and was just astounded by how much equity she had to give up, considering how little work she thought her realtor had to do. So she started this company to give people a way to list their homes and sell them through their site. And they won't charge commission. It doesn't matter how much you sell your house for. They'll charge a fee. Bottom, I guess the lowest fee is $599. Highest is $2,999 for a Mm. variety of services if you want the premium plan, things like photography, helping you negotiate, sign contracts, coordinate showings, things like that. So it depends on how much handholding you want, but you won't be paying more than $3,000 bottom line. So they just raised $10 million in a Series A round co-led by M13 and Homebrew, and they're looking to grow into more states. M13 is the non-Microsoft M12, M13 one, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I always get M12 and M13 mixed up. And I think that whoever branded those two companies should be taken outside and whacked with a ruler. But I really like this because it feels like it's bringing more power back into the individual and not concentrating it on the platform itself because they're trying to keep the price low. Whereas Marianne, in the kind of iBuying world that we've seen, companies have tried to do the opposite and bring so much of the process inside of their business. This feels much more like a consumer service versus a company that's going to need to raise a couple billion dollars in debt. Yeah, right. They're not buying properties. They're not doing that at all. They're just trying to help consumers keep more of their equity when they sell a house. And I think, you know, there are options. You can try to sell and list your house like on MLS by yourself. But a lot of people are intimidated by some of the logistics, right? But so at Homelist, you're saying, look, we'll help you with support. 
but we're not going to charge you an arm and a leg like commission wise. We'll help you get through some of that tricky stuff and you won't be charged more than $3,000 and you won't be charged unless your house sells. As, as from what oh. I understand, even the $599 basic plan, they don't charge you that unless your home sells. Did you get a sense of, I guess, how downturn proof the company is right now? I know in the piece, the M13 partner mentioned that it had been a strong seller's market in real estate in recent years with demand, mm -hmm. obviously surpassing supply. And that's what everyone's telling us. I don't know how close we are to that switching. And so mm -hmm. did the capital kind of feel like insurance or did it feel like it was going to just go to help them soar? Yeah. I mean, if anything, I think this is the kind of business that would not be hurt by a downturn. If anything, it might be helped by it. And even though there's a lot of cooling housing markets right now, like I know here in Austin, for sure, it's cooled considerably. The fact is there's still going to be a lot of people selling their houses mm -hmm. and there's still going to be a lot of people who would like to not give up so much money when they do. So I don't really personally think that's going to impact this company too much. Do either of you watch Selling Sunset? No. I, I've um, seen I've seen various home sales shows. I have not seen Selling Sunset. Is that a reference to Southern California? Um. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But the reason I was bringing them up, though, is like I actually was my first thought because this is betting that people are empowered and want to sell their houses themselves. And I feel like Selling Sunset has to have had some sort of role in that. It's one of the most popular Netflix shows of all time. Anyways, two cents. Yeah. There's always a tech angle in Selling yeah, Sunset. No, no, I'll have to check it out. But I, I do agree. I think I like the fact that this is kind of putting more control in the hands of the homeowners and sellers. And that's a good thing. They seem really passionate about this. And they said they grew revenue by over three times from 2020 to 2021. So they're only, I think, in, gosh, 17 states right now. But they're, okay. they're looking to expand all over the country. I just want to say, how bad do you have to feel if you're the agent that Lindsay McLean had to deal with <laughs> that was so overpriced and so underserviced that Ooh. she literally founded a company to stop you from doing your job? Like right. that's a, that's pretty much the biggest diss of all time, I think. And flux at the same time somehow. Right. <laughs> well, right. Let's scoot along to Degreed. Natasha, this had one of the best headlines that I can recall, which is Degreed's co-founder is back at the company he'd left with the startup he built. Dun, 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 <laughs> mystery. What's going on? Well, thank you for complimenting the headline because we all were overthinking the heck out of it. <laughs> so I appreciate it. You two especially have been just like my shoulders this week. But with Degreed most recently, they acquired LearnIn, which was founded by Degreed's co-founder. So David Blake is one of my favorite people in EdTech, if I'm allowed to say that, because he has done so much. He started Degreed, one of the most well-known EdTech companies, left that to do political organizing for a few years. And then during the pandemic, founded two companies, LearnIn and Book Club, which is kind of masterclass for book clubs. And so I kind of love this like full circle moment where he's now going to be the CEO. He's taking over from Degreed CEO, who's stepping down. Down and returning to like his place. Obviously, there's like conflict of interest stuff though that I brought up pretty early on in the story because you don't often see a company acquire their co-founders. Yeah. So for people like myself who are a little bit behind the EdTech ball, what is Degreed and how did it become one of the larger EdTech success stories? Yeah. So Degreed is one of the companies at the forefront of the LXP space. So learning experience platform, it gives you a bunch of content as a learner to go through and wade through. And so think of it as like the provider. And it was one of the first to really show up and do that. Learn In was David Blake's second act. And it was about taking this idea of a learning experience platform and making it more actionable for employees within a startup. And so it really did feel like this like follow-up to Degreed. And I don't think we'll ever get like the most specific details 
details on why they just didn't do it and degreed. And what he says is that he left to do political organizing, which he did. But of course, him coming back and doing the same problem all over again in a different way is interesting. Learn in comparative to Degreed, though, has raised, I think, only around like 20 million in capital, while Degreed has raised over 100. Um, oh, so much okay. smaller company. I dig this. I just, I'm glad to see EdTech rounds and EdTech activities still happening. I feel like for the Marianne back in 2020, it was like the hottest thing in the world. And then it really tailed off. And I was concerned that all those companies were going to die. But this makes me a little bit more optimistic. Yeah. And I, I do think it's cool when a co-founder's like, hey, you know what? I may have left this venture that I started, but I didn't forget it. So I'm back to help it grow again. Yeah. And yeah, to be clear, he was an executive chairman at Degreed this entire time. He recused himself from the negotiation process. Mm. And he, he did kind of admit that he is pretty distant. He was pretty distant from Degreed throughout the past few years. It's interesting yeah. to see him go from co-founder to CEO to executive chairman to CEO yet again. I swear to God, executive chairman is like godparent. Like it's this like <laughs> theoretical quasi relationship. It sounds really important, but do you really have to show for anything other than birthdays? No. You don't. <laughs> At least in the US, like definitely agreed. It's like that title that you see and it just, hopefully readers know that. I think they do. Yeah, it's, it's kicking yourself upstairs to avoid anything going on down below. The last deal of the week is for a company called Got It AI. And there's a mm. history here with Peter Whelan and helping incubate it and Discord and all that. But I, I want to put that aside because what the company does is the most interesting thing. So customer service, as we all know, big industry, everyone's had to go get help for something and dealt with a chat bot from hell. Like the thing that you type in something and you can tell it has a decision tree and you're not fitting into one of the two responses. So it kind of spits back random stuff at you and you want to scream and hurl your laptop into the lake. The idea with God AI is to bring advancements in essentially intelligent communication, stuff like GPT-3 and so forth, and make the chatbot experience much less miserable. And yep. so to me, the, the company's website's a little sparse. There's no pricing information, not a lot of stuff on the tech itself. And so I have a ton of question marks. Yes. But the fact that the company's been working on this for about four years now has raised some money, is getting some buzz, is ending up on TechCrunch and so forth, really has me excited because I would like to not have to talk to people on the phone if I can avoid it because I hate waiting for them to show up. But also when I talk to a computer, Natasha, it makes me want to scream. So if there is a middle ground, I say bring it on. It's like the Goldilocks problem to the most extreme and relatable degree. I think I definitely get into a little bit of like, okay, I don't want this to be completely autonomous. Like what happens when I have this really niche problem and you just keep putting me back into the same, like, why does your problem yeah. not fit into these five buckets? And so one part of the story that really stood out to me was that Got AI is inviting its enterprise customers to quote, set the tone for customer service conversations. Yeah. How do you set a tone? I just feel like that is... It's to help them avoid hot water, but to me, setting a tone is hot water in and of itself. <laughs> nah, 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 nah. I got this. So let's say you're United Airlines, my preferred provider. Me and too. Uh, someone arrives and says, hello, United, uh, my flight has been canceled, or you lost my bag, or you killed my cat. United would set the tone to dismissive hatred of the customer, and then it would <laughs> shout at you, because that's what they do. Alternatively, if you were Chipotle and someone got sick, you could say, too bad, sucks, you should have gotten real Mexican food. So you can set the level of antagonism to match the brand's kind of like product output. I know. I'm definitely imagining it like a like a thing where you can just like drag it and be like, I'm not in a good mood today. Mary, uh, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, of course, like I'm all for better chat bots, you know, dealing with customer service is often a nightmare. I guess what I'm wondering is like, what in particular about this technology, what about what they've built makes it different from existing offerings? And that's kind of the thing that I was trying to figure out before we recorded it today. Mm -hmm. So 
the idea is they're using next generation natural language understanding or NLU, I think, and essentially to create flexible virtual agents. And like, there's just not that much detail out there. So I read the TC post, I went to their site, I poked around, but it's kind of one of those static homepages with a contact us button. So there wasn't like a white paper that I could go read or whatever. So it's a little bit uncertain, but they have raised $15 million over a couple of rounds pretty quietly. And so there's enough faith in the technology and what they're building to actually have the potential to make things better. And that's kind of why I wanted to highlight it because if it does work, it's going to make the rest of our lives better, like until we die, because it'll be useful. Yeah. If it doesn't work out. Eh. Well, perhaps also that the it's intentional. Maybe they don't want to give away all their secrets because they don't want them to get copied. So, Or maybe the secrets just don't exist. We'll have to find out. But Alex, I will say it can't be much worse than what we currently use. I wanted to throw one last question on this bucket, which is, yeah. do you think Discord is enough of a stamp of approval to make making VCs pay attention to it, but how do you think Discord's involved here? Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and try to be careful about this. So Silicon Valley investor Peter Whelan helped incubate Got It AI, and he was also on the board of Discord until 2020 and helped incubate that company. So I think we've essentially had someone that people know involved with both of these projects. And given that Discord has become something, I mean, that I use every week, and I think lots of folks do, I think it is a stamp of approval. And one thing that people do like in Silicon Valley is a pedigree. This is why people have investments in their Twitter bios. It's why VC firms have a uh, portfolio page. It's why founders like to have a overly ornate LinkedIn page. People do like to status signal and so forth. And so Discord, being a success story, I think does give some weight to the company. And I think it's probably one of the reasons why we paid attention to it because Discord is a company that we know has done well and reached, I think, nine-figure revenues and so forth. So I think it matters more than people would like to admit, I guess. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's the only startup name in that headline, so. Well, okay, <laughs> got it, AI, is not exactly the best name ever. And also the URL is got dash it. And I'm like, what is it? 1994? Got it. Got it. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of the website or the thing, but the product could be very hot. I'll take it. Okay. Now we're going to pivot to coalition, which is something that I'm very excited about, but don't fully understand. But Natasha, it doesn't, (laughs) not a bad way. I just want to clarify the model a little bit with you, but we are seeing a new form of investment and a new form of network management as a way to help companies. Some people we know are part of this. What's going on? Yeah. So I'm going to try my best to explain it, but ask, I'll pause and ask follow-ups wherever because there's a lot going on here. And I think that's by intention, which I'll get to towards the end. But a former Glossier VP of comms, Ashley Mayer, who a lot of people probably know from tech Twitter, as well as City Block Health co-founder Toyin Ajayi, Umbrella co-founder Lindsay Ullman, and Tribe AI co-founder Jackie Nelson have teamed up to kind of create this two-pronged approach to getting women operators into the investment world. So they closed a 12.5 million investment vehicle in which all four of them are going to be GPs. Ashley Mayer is the only full-time GP. And they also created this network where they are connecting interested operators to two VC firms, Thrive and General Catalyst, for advice. Basically, those two funds will be tapping into that network, giving them the opportunity to give deals advice and in return, get a potential of upside. But not giving advice on deal making, but giving advice to portfolio companies of those two venture capital firms if they find a match. Yes, yes. So essentially think of it like General Catalyst and Thrive Capital will find their deals and be really happy with them. They'll come to Coalition's operator network and say, hey, are any of these operators a good match to give this portfolio company advice on an ongoing basis. If there is a match, then the chosen operator will get a percent of the upside that that deal could make one of those firms one day. It sounds a little confusing, but simply put, it gives interested investors a chance to start building their portfolio without needing to front load the capital. There's no capital exchange from the operator side in order to start benefiting from the investment itself. Hmm. So 
just make sure I'm getting this. These four women are building this thing. They are former operators or current operators. They have a $12.5 million vehicle that they will invest from. Also, they have a network of people they know. And with two firms, two venture firms, I should say, they're going to help connect talent to individual deals that those firms execute. And the operators they connect themselves, not the coalition group itself, will get a small portion of the upside as a potential if that deal goes well. So essentially, operators will get a chance to have carry on deals for major VC firms and the coalition crew can invest if they want, but it's not a requirement that they invest to have the operator portion happen. Yeah. I mean, I think all well, great summary, Alex. Yeah. I was like, I, I feel like the only thing I can add is like the impact it makes beyond the technical. The impact is that now founders can turn to coalition for either capital from that fund or their network for advice and no further dilution. Aspiring mm-hmm. investors can turn to the firm to begin building out their portfolio yeah. and LPs can put money into an operation that is both committed to broadening diversity on cap tables and committed to investing in startups. So it's doing a lot of things and it kind of goes to what Ashley was telling me, which is she believes a lot in the portfolio approach to your career, meaning that you should be doing a ton of things at the same damn time. Ah, no, yeah. no, Ashley. One, <laughs> I have one quick question though. Yes, like, yes, yes. If you're a startup looking for capital, how do you know if you should be pitching coalition or thrive or general catalyst? Yeah. I mean, this is the confusion that I also had. And I think will be one that founders will have as well. Right now, Ashley was saying that check size kind of is what differentiates someone from coming to coalition, the fund, which would be a smaller check versus GC or Thrive, because that would be a bigger check, more institutional support. At this time, coalition can't lead rounds. So I think of coalition as fitting into that family and friends round while GC or Thrive fit into the probably same area plus some more. But when it scales, I could totally see conflicts happening. So it's a good point, Marianne. Yeah. Just to put a data point into the fund size differential, I just pulled up Crunchbase data for General Catalyst and their last three funds, the GC Growth Fund, the Endurance Fund, and Early Stage Fund had a combined capital of $2.3 billion versus $12.5 million. So there is quite a discrepancy. You might get 150 or 250K from coalition and 25 million from GC to kind of put it into comparative terms. So unless you're raising a pre-pre-seed round, you're probably not going to go to coalition for a lead check, but you might want to have them in because as Natasha said up top, these are people that are well-known in technology circles, can make a lot of noise. I mean, I've known Ashley since her dates at Box, you know, which now feels like, I mean, relatively ancient history, I think. Totally, totally. I think it really bets on this idea where maybe two years ago, there was like that New York Times story that still haunts me and no shade, but it was kind of like everyone's becoming an angel investor. This is super easy and everyone's doing it. When in reality, that has always been a really small percent of people, even with the existence of rolling funds. And so I kind of like coalition as an answer to the really hard reality of having upfront capital as an aspiring investor and advisor and participating in that upside is just It's really reserved for still such a small percentage of people. Yeah, yeah. And before we move on, I just have to quickly point out, this is one of three new funds that TechCrunch covered this week that has all female partners. And that's pretty damn awesome. True Wealth Ventures, based here in Austin, closed a second fund, $35 million. They say it was oversubscribed. They invest only invest in companies that have a woman in in a leadership role, decision-making role of some sort. Maya Capital in Latin America closed on a $100 million fund to invest in Latin American startups, and they too emphasize female founders. So this is all good news. Oh, that's so good. I'll just add, I just saw this when I was prepping, Mac Ventures closed a $203 million fund too, which is like Mm -hmm. double what they raised in March of last year. So a lot of growth, and I think really reminds me, and if I can speak for all of us, this idea that growing assets under management with a focus on diverse entrepreneurs 
entrepreneurs is like a huge, huge, uh, what are you gesturing, Alex? I'm trying to do AUM with my hands. Oh, (laughs) I was like, we can cheerlead together. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, no, no. You're good. I was trying to do a heart, but I was like, I'll take, I'll take anything. I'll take anything. Um, long story short, I think that we're seeing a lot of efforts being made to increase the assets under management that are targeted towards diverse founders and towards getting diverse decision makers at these check writing tables. But also on the other end, we're seeing it always get harder over time. So this week, we also kind of moving us into our next section. Oh, ooh, so, before you before you do, can I call out some more funds that we've been covering? Because I think this is actually a pretty key thing. So sure. Dominic Mordori Davis wrote about Pilar Johnson's, I think it's a debut capital. I think that's what it's called. And she also took a look at a number of things about how LPs need to fund more diverse people. So this is a topic that if you care about, TechCrunch has tons and tons of coverage on. We are focusing on it. We care about it a lot. So it's really kind of top of mind for us. Uh, Also a fearless fund and uh, Arian Simone, I think fits into this overall kind of framework. So lots to read. Please, please go read it. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. Well, I'm going to try transitioning us to our, our second to last um, <laughs> theme. I'm like, is the time over yet? But I think on the other end of the progress that's being made for diverse founders, we're also seeing natural struggles that pop up over time because the landscape is changing and it is still hard to be a decision maker in venture and keep on raising big funds. So this week I covered alongside Dom about backstage capital cutting majority of its staff just weeks after pausing net new investments. For specifics, they downsized their staff from 12 to three people. And that was confirmed by the founder Arlen Hamilton in a podcast published Sunday. I mean, a huge change. The biggest one I've seen in a venture capital firm publicly in the most recent weeks. And the reason it connects to our previous section is because we really often talk about how you can keep raising these assets under management and it's really strong. But when that doesn't happen, as Arlen Hamilton told us in her podcast, Backstage Capital has been struggling to raise new funds. Something has to happen. And in this case, unfortunately, it was a majority of Backstage's staff. It's kind of amazing how long we've been talking about Backstage Capital. I was just trying to refresh my memory and I went back to just Crunchbase data and Backstage Fund 1 was back in 2016. So Arlen Hamilton's venture vehicle and I would say rising public profile, if you will, has been going on for, for quite some time, which makes this all, in, in my view, rather newsy, given that we've you know had her on the show. And I think she's done a, a very good job showing that you don't have to look like the standard Stanford graduate man in a vest to build a VC fund. And that's, I think, really much to her credit. Natasha, can you tell us more about the status of Backstage today? So they have a couple of people left. Are they still investing into existing portfolio companies? Have they stopped entirely? I, I don't know where we are now, if that makes sense. Yeah. So three months ago, I actually covered Backstage Capital Uh, which pitched me on the fact that they narrowed their investment strategy in which they're now only participating in follow-on rounds of existing portfolio companies. And so that happened. And at the time, Arlen Hamilton basically said that, you know, some people will take this as bad news, but it's not really bad news because they are continuing to grow assets under management. There's going to be focusing on follow-on funding. Of course, that's rare though, right? Because if you're raising money, why not do both? And so now fast forward to today, three months later, Arlen Hamilton did go pretty public in saying that it's been hard to raise money for their $30 million opportunity stage fund. They don't have dry powder right now. And in her podcast, she actually tells founders to start pitching one of the 26 funds that she's invested her own capital in. And so to me, that all kind of points towards that same answer, which is backstage capital is not active in the way that it was 12 months ago or six months ago. It's pausing in some way. And I'm I'm not saying ending, but it's pausing. Yeah. I mean, I think to Alex's point, you know, we've been writing about or talking about backstage capital in, in some capacity or another 
for uh, several years now. And Arlen's definitely been viewed as this champion for historically overlooked founders. And she has brought a lot to the table there for sure. And and she's in, herself invested, you just said, Natasha, what, in like two dozen yeah. other funds. I think, you know, this news just kind of made me sad, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just disappointing. And she said in her podcast something about like, I think Apple told them, I think, was it Apple told her that they were too far along or not far along enough and that another company told them the opposite? So I could see where that would be really discouraging. I don't know what the future holds for Backstage, but overall, I could say it's certainly a little bit a little bit disheartening to see the struggles they're having. Speaking about things that are a little bit disheartening, we've, uh, we've paired this particular story in our notes with what's going on at Substack. And I know that everyone has a view on Substack. Everyone has their own perspective via your views on who they've offered kind of like contracts to, their investor base, how they approach free speech, whatever. Put all that aside for a minute and just kind of digest the fact that Substack just cut 13 people from its staff. I think it had less than 100 people. So I think that's a pretty material cut of its overall staffing. And we've also covered on TechCrunch.com, a lot of notes that they've been looking to raise more funding. And essentially, with the changed venture capital market and valuation space, it didn't seem to work out for them as they wanted, so they're cutting their costs. But one thing I, you know, one thing I like about Substack, I think I have one, Natasha has at least one, I think we might have a three or four between the three of us. It's a place that puts writers first. And so, you know, as a person who makes money typing for a living, I was bummed out to see this news because my view is that Substack is, is crushing it. I have a backup plan and a retirement fund. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we talked about this in other previous episodes that, you know, they had, the company had raised $65 million last year at a $650 million valuation. And Dreesen, I guess, put up a decent amount of that funding. And part of the issue is that its revenue was only about $9 million last year. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure why. I think that's one of the things I'm wondering about is like, why is its revenue not higher? And that's, that's probably a bigger story right there. Well, keep in mind that the the $9 million figure I think is calendar last year. So it closed 2021 at a faster run rate. So it's December revenue times 12 was greater than 9 million and it's been growing since then. So we can probably say it's probably on like a, I don't know, 15, $16 million run rate right now, Mm -hmm. if I'd guess. Mm -hmm. Still not a ton of money, but it's enough that they can pay a bunch of their staff with revenue versus external capital. So that might explain the layoffs, but Marianne, people don't like to pay for Words on the internet. They'd rather get them for free. So I think that's... That's part of it, right? It's part of it. The hard part with this layoff is that it is it impacted a lot of HR and writer support roles, which of course comes close to home for all three of us. But Substack cut 13 jobs, Backstage cut nine jobs. I think some people can have the argument that that's not that many people, who cares? But to me, I will never want to get into the game where we're deciding how many people losing a job has impact. Like 13 jobs and nine jobs are a lot of people who just lost their jobs during like one of the hardest times that it's ever been to be a human. And so I, I, that's just my two cents. And I'm glad we wrote this story. I'm glad that me and Dom wrote the backstage story because I think it's really important to contextualize how many people were impacted of an overall staff. We've covered the hundreds, but we should also be covering the nine and 13. Yeah. Just like, well, you know, if Netflix cuts 100, 200, 300 people, it's a single digit percentage of their overall staff. But if you cut a single or double digit number, and that's a double digit percentage of your staff. It's huge news, especially yeah. in funds and companies that do a lot with a relatively small staff size. You know, right. I mean, this is not an Amazon warehouse where you have to have like hundreds or thousands of people. A venture capital firm can be a dozen or two and have an outsized impact in the market because of how their model functions. So we're covering layoffs. We don't love it. It's not, no. it's not fun. Not Everyone hates to answer your phone calls. Everyone's kind of mean. It's, it's not, it's not the place you want to spend your time, but it's what the market is doing. So and I'll say like, 
because we cover funding rounds, because we cover this growth, it is as newsworthy. The success is as newsworthy as the, I don't even want to say failure. I want to say like the change, the reaction, the pivot, like that is all so newsworthy. Right. And that's just my two cents. Yeah. I feel (laughs) hypocritical. Like I've covered a number of companies that last year became unicorns. And then this year are laying off and we're not trying to diss anyone. We're not trying to like make fun or anything like that. It's just, just a fact. And, and like Natasha said, doesn't mean anyone's failing. Maybe they're just resetting or correcting or trying to keep themselves alive. But yeah, we are kind of under an obligation, I think, to follow up on that sort of thing too. We are not trying to make fun. We are not trying to diss unless you are talking about in particular, the Andreessen Horowitz new media investing strategy (laughs) that is apparently kaput because ladies and gentlemen, and well, I mean, Andreessen could have put money into Substack. They just raised a bajillion squillion dollars. They led the last round. Where the f*** is Andreessen? Future to celebrate its one-year birthday. I just learned that the other day. What's uh, what's Future for people who don't know? Future is Andreessen Horowitz media content marketing ambition. Yeah. Yeah. Good it was it was launched around the time they were putting money into Substack. Clubhouse was, I think, more popular. And so there was was this this. moment, you know? And then Andreessen raised a bunch more money and then let this happen to Substack. They could have just written a check if they wanted to, but apparently they don't. So we can make fun of that all we want because they thought they knew how to do our job and it turns out it's hard. Okay, let's move on. Last theme of the day is about Robinhood, FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried and what's going on with crypto exchanges and equities exchanges. And I just want to rewind the clock. Do you guys remember in 2020 when everyone was saving cash and trading and meme stocks were hot and GameStop was blowing up the stock market and everything was kind of whimsical and silly? Like yesterday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does feel like yesterday. <laughs> uh, anyways, those days are behind us and Robinhood is dealing with the struggles thereof and so forth. And we are now seeing quite a lot of commentary about the fact that the man behind FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, or SBF, as he's known in the uh, crypto world, might buy Robinhood. And so I just wanted to start from a high level and just get kind of reactions to that. So Marianne, when you saw this news over the last week or two, what'd you think? I mean, my first thought was that, you know, Robinhood's been struggling. SBF clearly sees this as an opportunity, even though he denied active discussions. He did purchase a 7.6% stake in the company, right? Like last month. Yeah. Yeah. So, um... I don't know. You did a good job, actually, Alex, in, in a story that you wrote about like why FTX might want to buy Robinhood. I think you did a really good job explaining it because Robinhood, you know, obviously is not strictly crypto focused, but it does have crypto trading on its platform. But it has a whole lot of users which might benefit a crypto exchange like FTX, right? Yeah, that, that's the gist of it. So I was trying to personally theory game out why this deal might be happening. Why was Sam Bankman-Fried buying a chunk of Robinhood? Why might FTX add it to its portfolio? And the answer is, I think, just essentially user accounts. And currently, today, we are in a trough or what you might call a crypto winter. And when crypto prices depress, we do see a decline in trading activity. And that means that currently exchanges that make their money off of trading-based incomes, Coinbase, Robinhood, etc., are in the doldrums, both in terms of activity and valuation. So if you have a lot of money and you believe that crypto will rise again. Why not buy a bunch of users now and then make lots of money later on? And so that's just a bit. I want to say that as we're recording this, I just saw a news uh, Uh brief from CNBC. I'm just going to read this. FTX closes in on deal to buy embattled crypto lender BlockFi for $25 million in fire sale. So BlockFi, not Robinhood, but FTX has been in the market as almost like the vulture slash savior of various crypto (laughs) things that are in Trump. Alex, you always articulate exactly what I'm thinking. It's like you read my mind. That's the word that I that I had that I didn't say. Vulture. <laughs> Vulture or savior? Vulture. Vulture. How awkward yeah. is it? 
that the story was that they were going to buy Robinhood and now they bought BlockFi, right? Is that awkward? I think that's awkward. Well, well, okay. I think they might be trying to do both. I don't really? think they're exclusive. Oh, oh, yeah, I think so <laughs> now. Can. BlockFi also raised a ton of money last year and was supposedly growing like freaking crazy. So the fact that it's now in a position where it's so vulnerable that it can be picked up by FTX is, is very notable. Yeah, yeah, that is insane. So let's play a game. Natasha, how much money, according no. to you? No. <laughs> Dang it. I hate it. I hate it when I've done a show enough with people that they're like, I know what's coming next. And I'm I not know what's play. coming next, but you answer your question. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, not including the $250 million in debt financing from BlockFi they'd raised in June, June 21st, which is about a week ago, um, they raised like, I think $1.1 billion. So if they are sold for $25, it's equivalent to, I don't know, like a fill up and a, and a free, like a hot dog from the gas station. Like it's essentially $0. It's brutal. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Okay. The crypto market we're not talking about today because it's, it's bad, but not really changing too much in the last couple of days. But uh, yeah, this is the data point about where things are. Anyways, apparently they're going to get BlockFi for cheap. So why not buy Robinhood? Oh my God. We need to get Chain Reaction on here to talk yeah. about this for a second because I wish we could just like dial a friend. I wish it was like that easy oh, on yeah. the podcast, <laughs> but it's like, that's crazy. Yeah, we should get Jackie and Anita and Lucas to do like a like a fire, like um, what do you call it, like a rapid fire round, a lightning yeah. round of responses to to this because I am uh, perplexed by how quickly everything fell apart. I do have a thesis though about what's happening in crypto. Do tell. So one thing you can do if you create a product category that is inherently based on tradable assets is lever up dramatically. And loan people money, let them have more leverage. They can make larger bets. And, and if everything's going up, there can be kind of a, a positive reinforcement effect going up. And then everyone kind of levers up more. Everything's going up, blah, 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 blah. And then the moment it snaps and then everything turns, all of a sudden everyone's holding the wrong end of that particular trade. And so then the, the damage cascades in almost like a contagion style format. And I wonder if like 3AC and BlockFi and Celsius and Terra, Luna and blah, blah, blah. I wonder if all this is kind of the same issue working its way through the system. That's my uh, my theory craft. I think I don't know really true. well said. And yeah, I'm sure there's agreed. like louder voices within these companies that are making, even if that cascade hasn't yet hit you. I'm, I'm sure this is a time where crypto companies are seeing what kind of investors they actually brought on. Are they the ones that were crypto bullish for long term or just for the moment? Or fair weather. Yeah, that's friends. the word. Yeah. Oh, like we're all helping like each other an, so much today. Like, like Andreessen <laughs> investing in media companies. Oh, no. I will have a piece up about Andreessen YC and Product Hunt this weekend on TC+. Plus, mm. So everyone should check it out. Not, not, not to brag, but I, I happen to have already read this. and it's, Alex inspired it. Alex inspired it with his hot take, and then I responded with a hot take it's, again. And It's and real so, hot. It's spicy. <laughs> it's probably the thing that I've had the most fun reading from TechCrunch in the last month. And so, I, awesome. I, I mean, I love you two oh so much. But like in this case, Natasha, like you really did just bam out of the park. Uh, thank so. you. I can't That's wait so to nice. read it. Thanks, it's so going nice. to be great. Um, Saturday, 4 a.m. <laughs> Pacific time, it'll be on TC. <laughs> I know that's we just scheduled it. So there you go. There we go. Should we shut up now? Should we stop? I guess. I Marianne? think we're over time. Yeah. Having too much fun here today. Okay. Well, that was equity. We are live on Thursdays sometimes, and this comes out on Friday. We're not back Monday, July 4th. We'll be here Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday of next week. We adore you. Goodbye. Bye. 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 